Radiolab is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <clears throat> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio from WNYC. Yep. Okay, let's just do the thing. All right. Hey, I'm Lulu Miller. I'm Latif Nasser. This is Radio Lab. Okay. Basically, I was just like nosing around and I found this article in a journal called Nature Machine Intelligence. I don't even know what I was looking for when I was, and I just found this paper. And it had this weird kind of boring title that I didn't understand, but I like started reading it. And the the tone of it, there was something about the tone of it that was sort of breathless. Mm. Like, oh my God, we just discovered this thing and, and it's kind of scary. And we're not the only ones who are able to find this thing. We're not the only ones who are actually looking for this thing. And it felt like calamitous. And by the time I finished it, I was breathless. Like, I was like, oh, my God, like, is this what I think it is? Because if it is, this thing is terrifying. Okay, what, what, and what's okay. the thing? Okay, so here's what happened. So okay. our scene begins with... La, 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 la. You're muted. Oh, I'm muted. This guy named Sean. Hey! I'm muted, duh. Okay. Um, let's, let's actually rewind a little bit. Like, who are you? What is your company? What do you do? Um, so my name's Sean Eakins. I'm the CEO of Collaborations Pharmaceuticals. And uh, this is a company based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, I founded it 2015, and we work on using computational approaches for doing drug discovery. Which basically means what they do is they use AI to discover new medicines. Hmm. You're a medicine hunter, and you do it through computers. Exactly, yes. So essentially what they do is they've built, like, using a lot of, like, open source technology, a lot of, like, open source, like, databases of drugs. They basically created this computer program that's kind of like a search engine. And so they call it Megasyn or Megasign. And Megasyn. how do you say it? Yeah, Megasyn. So um, it was a really quick name for uh, megasynthesis. Oh, so and and sort of synthesizing drugs that exist with receptors and brains mm, and kind of. It's a little complicated. It's one of those strange things where, like, I don't use it. I have one of my employees that basically codes it and puts it all together. <laughs> so that employee. Oh, sorry. Let me take my mask off here. His name's Fabio. Okay. Fabio Urbina. Okay. So what they do is they typically work with rare diseases, which aren't considered profitable. Big pharma has ignored them. There's no drugs for them. So what they'll do is they'll take one of these diseases that you know usually 
certainly a few hundred people have. And they'll be like, okay, we need a drug that will do a very specific thing in the body to stop this disease, to stop the person from getting sick. Right. So they'll tell Megasyn, we need a drug that can do this very specific thing. And then they'll hit search, and Megasyn will comb through all the available drugs that have been discovered, all the drugs that have been even evaluated, like this giant network of basically every drug that's ever been created. And if from that, Sean and Fabio can't find a good match... Well, we're kind of out of luck. That's the end of that. Except it's not. Because Megasyn can do this other thing. It can put together a drug, basically. So how this works is drugs are basically just made up of molecules. And the thing about molecules that work as drugs... Is they have a certain molecular weight range. They have certain properties. They're distinct. You can look at them and say, okay, that's a drug, or, oh, that looks nothing drug-like. And so using all these public databases and just inputting all this information into Megasyn about chemistry, molecular engineering... In a sense, we've, we've tried to train it to make things that a chemist would make. And so with that knowledge, what they do is they take the rare disease and they say, okay, Megasyn, in the infinity of molecules that could be drugs that, that don't even exist yet, can you make something... That might be active against our disease of interest. ...that could work here? So Fabio will enter all this stuff into Megasyn, hit run, and within minutes... It'll spit out... ...these brand new, never-before-seen molecules. Molecules that look like drugs. And then Sean and Fabio can go through these molecules and say, okay, this is the one we want to do this thing we need it to do. Huh. Huh. To disrupt this disease that humankind doesn't have a cure for. Oh my gosh. The speed of that just needs a, a moment. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of amazing. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Okay, so this is, I mean, this is where things start to get dark. So it's 2021, and these guys, they are just doing their thing, and they get invited to this conference. Called the SPIES, or SPIES, Convergence Conference. Kind of international security conference. And the, the goal of it really is to understand how technologies can be misapplied. Part of the theme is like this idea of, of like dual use. So, okay, for example, dual use is like a nuclear bomb and nuclear power plants come out of the same technology, right. like the so-called like double-edged sword. And so we got this invite. And of course, we're thinking, oh, well, that's interesting. Why, why, why us? How can we misuse wonderful drug discovery tools? It's never even occurred to them. So they're sort of like brainstorming, like, okay, if we were like really evil. What would we do? How would we misuse what we know? They called it like their Dr. Evil plan. Yeah. Like, what would Dr. Evil do here? So yeah, it was, it was a very weird feeling. So they're like imagining and thinking it up. Well, we were running out of time. When Sean has this idea. I hadn't given it a lot of thought. It was it was pretty quick. So one of the things about Megasyn... Is if we are trying to generate a new drug, we want to make sure it's not toxic. Fabio basically programmed this filter in Megasyn so that if the side effects of the medicine are going to be worse than the medicine itself, like, or than the disease Pass. itself. like not don't, interested. Not interested. Don't bother. Because, of course, it doesn't matter if your drug cures all cancer. If it stops your heart from beating, it's going to not be a good drug. It'll save my life, but it'll also kill me. So, so I'll pass. Yeah, exactly. Got it. And so Sean, well, he thought, what if instead of going right, we went left? Mm. What if we flipped the filter? What if we did the exact opposite, like yeah. photo negative of that filter? Just of, spit out the deadliest? Yeah. 
Exactly. And so I was using a, a 2015 Mac that night. Just did a couple of copy and paste changes. Typed a one where there was a zero and a zero where there was a one. It was that simple. It was literally that simple. He hit run on Megasynth. And then went home for the evening. Next day, they open up the file and it's just overwhelming so many potential molecules. Tens of thousands of molecules. Which they run against a public database to find out if Megasin had created anything truly terrible that already exists. So they're looking, they're looking, when all of a sudden they come across a match. With a super hideous molecule called VX. So what exactly is VX? It's the thing that... World News Today, a toxic substance was indeed the murder weapon. Do you remember that Kim Jong-un poisoned his half-brother right. in an airport? Two women now in custody. That's VX. Wiped his face with the toxic substance. It's a nerve agent. Developed in the United Kingdom in the 1950s. Banned by the United Nations and classified as a weapon of mass destruction, it is considered one of the most lethal chemical substances ever made. Ever created. I mean, one way to think about it is, if you think about about salt. A few of those crystals of salt, if it was VX, would be enough to kill you. And if you did get exposed, your muscles would start to twitch, your pupils would dilate, you'd start sweating, then you'd start to vomit. After that, your muscles would go completely slack. You'd be paralyzed, including your diaphragm, which would stop working. So you'd start to suffocate and within a few minutes of being exposed, you would die. Oh, that's horrific. Yeah, I mean, it's it's awful. It's very awful. And Megasin basically independently created it with the push of a button. What did you think was going to happen? Um, I mean, realistically— and maybe it was just what did happen. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, well, it was—I uh, think what did happen was just the ease of it. Um, I, I, I thought we would maybe get a few things that looked like VX. You did? Yeah. And we found a few, you know, in the literature, in, in publications. A few horrible things humans had already created, and they figured that'd be it. But what we got was— Thousands of different molecules that look like VX. Thousands of brand new, never before seen molecules that were actually predicted to be more potent than VX. Massively more potent, like orders of magnitude. This is just bad, right? Yeah, it's bad. It was like the alarm bells started ringing at that point. Because, according to Sean, if any chemist got their hands on this and wanted to make some of these molecules into weapons, if they did, because no one knows they exist, these weapons would be untraceable, undiagnosable, wow. incurable. What if this is so scary? It's really, really scary. I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep. I did not sleep. There was that gnawing away, you know, we shouldn't have done this. And then, oh, we should just stop now. Like, just stop. But... In a minute, we're going to keep going. Stay with us. Radiolab is supported by Z-Biotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Z-Biotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Z-Biotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow, as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. 
Go to zbiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off. Radiolab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited-time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently... A large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Lulu. Latif. Radio Lab. So Sean and Fabio have opened Pandora's box of chemical weapons. Yeah, now we have this sort of file in our computer and all of a sudden holds all these warfare agents. Uh, was there part of you that was just like, delete, 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 and just pretend this never happened? Just unthink the thought experiment. That definitely crossed our mind. Yeah, uh, we definitely had that sort of reaction to this. Like, I don't want to know any, I don't want to know anymore. But then they figured, wait a second. Other people could do this. You do not need a PhD to do this. You just need some basic coding knowledge, a basic laptop, and then all the data is available online for free. This could be something people are already doing or have already done. You know, these tools are in the hands of people that there is no control of. You know, anyone could do this anywhere in the world. And so the two of them in this moment were faced with this dilemma of now that you know what you know, what do you do? Do you tell people? Well, we have to make people aware of these potential uses of the technology and show people that, yes, these technologies can be misused. So maybe people could prepare for it, try to prevent it. Exactly. But at the same time, if you tell people... We could inspire instead of prevent. There may be people that would want to do this, see how far they could push it. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Ah! It's exactly the double-edged sword. So what what, what happened? So, okay, so, so, okay. so they make this decision together where they're like, we got to go to this international security conference and we got to say this out loud but we're not going to show anybody the specifics and we're going to tell them just enough that they know that this is a really serious problem yeah and we got to flag it and hopefully someone smarter than us can figure out a solution to this and so they go to the conference they present at the conference they then 
publish a few months later a, a comment in this journal, which is basically effectively what they say at the conference, and it blows up. Uh, well, maybe that's the wrong word to use, but like it, <laughs> it goes everywhere. Wired, Scientific American. There was a thing on it in the Washington Post. There was a thing on it in the Economist. There was a thing on it in this thing. And a lot of people like me stumble upon this thing. There's a lot of like active discussion about it from not just chemical weapons people, but also AI people and people in the pharmaceutical industry and and philosophers and you know weapons people and like like all kinds of different people are like weighing in on it and um and thinking about this and like what do you do here so it's kind of i think they got what they want but they also like every night they're going to bed thinking like tomorrow i could wake up and some horrible thing could happen and it could have been because of me okay okay so in the midst of reporting this story i ended up talking to this expert so uh, my name is sonia benoit graham gormley she teaches at george mason university in the biodefense program and i study uh, weapons of mass destruction particularly biological weapons and i found sonia because you know i just i needed somebody else to talk to about this i i needed some kind of outside perspective because when i read sean and fabio's paper i legitimately thought this was very very terrifying yeah, that's that's the impression it it gives. And um, my point is that the thought experiment is just a thought experiment. It just shows that it is possible to identify new molecules, uh, but there's a long way between the idea and the production of an actual drug or an actual weapon. Like, if you're a chemist who's going to make something that just exists on paper, like, that takes a long time, a lot of investment, a lot of work, a lot of thought. And it's already hard enough to do it with chemicals that already exist. She said there's plenty of examples of scientists who try to transform them. Who try to tweak them just a little bit. To make them more harmful. And very often they failed. Because it's just super, super difficult. That's the point. Hmm. And I told her it was still kind of hard to wrap my head around it because the way that I was thinking about it, I I was actually thinking of like the anarchist cookbook, the molecules is almost like recipes or something, right? It's like this thing spat out 40,000 recipes or whatever. And then you just go to the store and get some fertilizer and no one make it. And and it's the exact proportion. Exactly. So I was worried about that. Right. I'm picturing that too. Is that the right analogy or would you use like a different analogy? Um, And she was like, no, Actually, that's the same metaphor I use when I'm teaching my students. (laughs) But think about it this way. If we take the analogy of a cake, making a cake. These molecules are like really fancy cakes. And based on what I read, right, based on the article, what they have is a list of different ingredients. Uh, I feel like your takeaway about this paper is that you... You have not lost any sleep over this paper. No, no, I think I found it a little bit too alarmist. Huh. So Sonia is is soothing us. Yeah, but there's still a problem, and it's not a small one. We were just contacted by the uh, White House this morning. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah, we weren't expecting that. So what did they say? So they want us to brief them um, on the paper, basically. Holy crap. Apparently, it's causing a lot of buzz in the White House right now. Whoa. And so I actually followed up with Sean after our first interview about this very thing. So we ended up doing a Zoom call with folks from the Office of Science and Technology Policy and the National Security Council, which was very surreal. So this was just in March 2022. They do this presentation for the White House folks. I think they were worried that we were 
you know, kind of crazy people. And uh, we were just going to let all of this information out there. But at the end of their presentation, there's like a Q&A and the White House folks are asking them questions. Is this information, you know, sort of locked away somewhere? And it is. So yeah, you know, one of the first things they did was put it in a file and encrypt it really heavily. <laughs> and it's on a computer that is not connected to the internet. It's air-gapped. Fabio has it on his machine, locked away, encrypted. But as the White House staff kept asking questions, Sean was like, Oh. I was just waiting for the question. He's like anticipating it. It was just, when are they going to ask the question, the elephant in the room, right? And then finally they asked the question. Uh, can we have the data? And it's like another one of these moments where Sean has to decide, you know, maybe the government should know about this so they can anticipate it, try to regulate it. But on the other hand, now you're actually handing over the list to one of the most powerful governments in the world. Like, if anybody has access to Michelin star chefs, here they are. And Sean, it's his call, right? Because he's the CEO of the company. And Sean says, you know, no. No. And to me, that was like... I was like, oh my God, I, how would you even? And how, how did they respond? Uh, well, the reaction was basically, uh, I think it was like, okay. I mean, it was pretty, all right, well, you just have to accept that. And what, What's your rationale for saying, why not share it with them? Uh, I just didn't feel that I wanted to hand it over to them. Um, we had other scientists reach out to us as well, um, asking exactly the same question. And I told the, the White House that I... I didn't feel like, you know, we should do that. We should give it over to them. Um, and, and I just didn't feel like it was right. I mean... So you were basically like, no to you, White House, and no to everybody. We're not sharing this with anybody. Right. And you've told everybody about the existence of the list, but you're not sharing the list. What's the impetus there? I mean, it's bad enough to put the article out there and tell people how to do it and watch it sort of spread out across the globe. But if I gave them the list of molecules, it's almost like a red flag to a bull, right? The chemists out there are just going to try to figure out, all right, which ones are the easiest ones to make and then just make them. And I, I don't want to be the person that has to say, yeah, I'm responsible for that. And so for now, the list just sits on Fabio's computer, kind of waiting to be used in the case of an emergency in case someone was to recreate it somewhere else and actually start making some of these things. Reporting this story, I talked to a lot of people AI experts, weapons experts, that kind of thing. And also, like, from my own expertise studying the history of science, um, this is a thing that just happens where something gets created and someone finds a way to use it for the opposite purpose, right? That's the story of the nuclear bomb and nuclear power. It's the story, and this is one we've actually done on the show before, of the uh, nitrogen fixing process that can give you fertilizer to feed billions or, you know, gunpowder and explosives. This kind of thing just happens over and over and over in history. But I think the thing that struck me about what Sean and Fabio were doing is how when it came to change this machine, from making drugs that would help people. It's just how easy it was. I just did a couple of copy and paste changes. To flip it. Type the one where there was a zero and a zero where there was a one. It was that simple. It was literally that simple. Like, the line between this thing doing good and this thing doing bad 
felt so thin. So, and it was in thinking about this that I reached out to an old friend of mine, a guy named Yan Lu. He studies ancient Chinese medicine. He now works at the University of Buffalo. And I called him because he always would tell me this thing that when it comes to drugs... No, there's no clear boundary between what is poison and what is medicine. That an individual drug can be good or bad for you. It could go either way. It is the matter of a dose that make a difference. That it's all about the dosage, or also about the intent of the person giving it to you, or about the body of the person who's taking it. It's more about the context. Than it is about the drug itself. Exactly. And I showed him Sean and Fabio's paper, and he was like, oh, this feels like a toxicology paper. This separation between pharmacology and toxicology, you know, we have a long tradition, uh, especially in the West. It's a sense of separation between what is good and what is bad. But he's like, pharmacologists and toxicologists are studying the same molecules. But it's like, we just want them to be separate. Exactly. But every substance has the potential to either heal or to kill. And that's what I keep thinking about about the story is that there, there's no real line here. Everything is capable of everything, and it, it's just a matter of how we choose to use it. Stick around, because coming up after the break, we look at the technology we are already using and ask, are we so sure this is how we want to use it? Radio Lab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day. When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. Radiolab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about hustle culture. You know, the whole rise and grind, go big or go home thing. It's a lifestyle that may not be for you, but one that your money can handle thanks to Betterment. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. How? Their automated technology optimizes your investments again and again. With Betterment, your money is taking ice baths at 5 a.m. while you get your well-deserved rest. Your money downs protein smoothies and automatically reinvests your dividends all before you head out the door. Your money is a workaholic, but you don't have to be because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Okay. Okay. Hey, this is Radiolab. I'm Lulu Miller. And I'm Latif Nasser. In the first segment, you heard all about one technology and the potentially toxic stuff it could spit out. Now we're going to another technology, one you're certainly more familiar with, and the very real way it is currently making all of our lives more toxic. But maybe we're okay with that? We should say that this next story does contain both language and discussions that may not be appropriate for younger listeners. Come on, come on. 
Don't be a sassafras. Hello, hello, hello. Hey. Lovely. Hey, this is Radiolab, and I'm Simon Adler, sitting in for Lulu and Latif this week. Yeah, how do you feel that the B team has been set in (laughs) for this? Yeah, they're like, um, you know, the understudy of the understudy was out today, so you're going to have to take some. Yeah, so you're going to have to take just the... Uh, the ushers. The ushering. <laughs> because a while back, our place, reporter, so producer, uh, Rachel Cusick, she uh, sat me down in the studio. Yeah, exactly. To tell me a story about both how beautiful we humans are, but also just how downright awful we can be. In the tricky business of deciding who should be held responsible when that ugly part of us shows. Let's hit it. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so we are going to start on a stoop in Harlem. Over in West Harlem in, what, 2016? Yeah, 2016. With this guy? Matthew Herrick. Wait, do you go by Matt or Matthew? Most people call me Matthew. Cool. At the time, Matthew had recently moved from L.A. to New York City. It was definitely, you know, a a punch to the face, if you will. Trading palm trees and sunshine for a smelly city stoop. Yeah. Anyway. I think it was around October, mid-October. I was sitting on my stairs, just like in the front of my building. What's this guy look like? Do we know? Uh, like tall, muscular, salt and pepper hair nowadays. I think probably just pepper back in the day. And I was having a cigarette and a gentleman walked up and stopped and just stood in front of me. And, you know, it's New York, so you have a lot of weirdos. So I just, you know, <laughs> figured it was just some weirdo being weird. Like, whatever. I'm just going to ignore them. Yeah, like, I'm like, it's all good. So I'm like kind of avoiding eye contact, but then I realized that they're standing there for, you know, an extended period of time. So I like looked up. And it's someone that he doesn't know, someone that he doesn't recognize, but this guy... He went, hey, Matt. And I was like, hi. Like, how the hell do you know my name? And he says, it's so-and-so. We were talking on Grindr. Grindr, dating app used primarily by gay men. And so this stranger tilts his phone towards Matthew, and he's like, look. And it's a profile on the app with, you know, a picture of me. And I was like, that's not possible. Like, that is a photo of me. But that's not me. That is not a profile that I made. I am not on Grindr, you know? So he looks up at this guy. Like, I don't know how to explain this. I don't know who you're talking to. I'm very confused right now. Like, you need to leave. And I got up and I went inside. And I remember I looked at my roommate, Michael, and I was like, someone just showed up looking for me from Grindr. Like, how weird is that? Yeah. Little did I know. (laughs) Because after that, another guy came. And then another. People started showing up. It just keeps happening. Sometimes I would be home or sometimes I'd be leaving the building and there'd be people outside. Each time, a different man. You know, one or two a week. All saying the same thing. Like, we were talking on Grindr, let's have sex. So he reports the profile to Grindr, got the, like, automatic reply. We'll get back to you soon, or whatever the hell it said. But he doesn't actually hear back from anyone at the company. And meanwhile... People were showing up to my home in large volumes. And, like, I'm living my life. Leave me alone. Can I get a break? And finally, one night, he's annoyed. He's fed up. I stood up and said, this. And he decides he is going to get to the bottom of this. Yes, yeah, so I downloaded Grinder. He makes a profile. Without a photo. And then logs on. And I saw 
the fake profile of myself, very close proximity. Grinder actually has this map feature where you can see where other people are who are on Grinder. And this person who had Matthew's name and his photo is like right there, right outside his apartment. So I walked outside and I remember looking down the street and he took off running. And I went and chased after him. And while he's running, Matthew is looking at the Grinder app, scanning for the fake him. Because you can refresh it and it'll tell you how far that person is away. And this fake Matthew, he was like 20 feet away. So I'm walking along Morningside Park, refresh the app. Then 15. I was walking and I was walking. Then 10. And I remember I looked down and I was like, he's five feet away. How is he five feet away? And I stood on the park bench and I looked over the fence and laying face down in the bushes was JC. His ex, JC. And I screamed, I caught you. I caught you. I knew it was you. JC started yelling back at him. Matthew ran away. JC chased him. The cops got called. It was a mess. Ugh. So an ex-lover made a fake profile for the purpose of terrorizing him? Yeah. Matthew and this guy, JC, had started dating not long after Matthew arrived in the city. And we dated for, I want to say, eight to ten months. Matthew saw some little red flags. And ended things. And that's when these people started coming. Hmm. I think once Matthew broke up with him, he was like, if you don't want to date me, then like, screw you. I'll make your life a living hell. Anyhow, once he knew it was JC. I ended up getting an order of protection against him. I told and so JC couldn't go anywhere near him in real life. But an order of protection doesn't really apply when JC's sending other people to his door. There was no ramifications for what he was doing. There wasn't anything the courts or the cops could do about it. So Matthew contacts Grinder again and is like, this is the guy, shut him down, please. But still... Nothing. No acknowledgement. We reached out to Grinder for comment, didn't hear back. Anyhow, with Grinder doing nothing, JC went on the offensive. He actually made multiple fake Matthew profiles. There were two to three existing on the platform. And that's when, you know, the gay zombies started coming for me. <laughs> Do you call them gay zombies? Yeah, it's because it's like everyone's like, mad. <laughs> Just like, must get sex now. <laughs> yeah. I would leave at 6 o'clock in the morning to walk my dog. There would be somebody outside waiting for me. I would come home at night, 11.30, 12 o'clock at night. There'd be somebody waiting for me. And literally every single day of my life. And it wasn't just a lot of awkward but harmless encounters because these profiles... Said I was looking for rape fantasies. Ugh. Matthew would try to explain the situation to people calmly, but then... The profiles were telling these individuals it was part of my turn-on. So to stay and then approach me again. Ugh, just diabolical. Yeah, and so again, he tries reporting the profiles. I had friends reporting profiles, family reporting profiles, sending emails to the company. Again, nothing. I was slammed against the wall. Oh my gosh. There was someone who broke into my building and physically assaulted my roommate were trying to get to me. He goes to the cops. File a police reports and they turn me away. They were like, we don't understand. I don't think anybody really could grasp what I was actually talking about. JC started making profiles that promised people crystal meth and said they should show up at the restaurant where Matthew worked. I was taking an order at a 
table and I remember this guy is tapping on my shoulder saying my name mm-hmm. high out of his mind and I'm looking at the people that are sitting down and they're looking back up at me and they're like what is going on and my eyes are just welling up with tears because I'm like oh my god and I'm like how do you want your burger cooked you know what I mean <laughs> and this went on for months Jesus did you hate hearing your name at that point in your life oh I hated it I hated everything about existing. I hated it all. Like, I remember sitting there saying to myself, like, I either want to blow my brains out or throw myself off a building. And then one day, Matthew's talking to his lawyer. My family court lawyer, she said, hey, there's this woman named Carrie Goldberg. Um, She might be able to help you. So he takes the train to downtown Brooklyn. I sat in her office and she told me a little bit about herself. I mean, as, as background, I started this law firm after I had been the target of a malicious and creative and relentless ex. Attorney Carrie Goldberg. One of the, the most malicious things that my ex was doing was, was um, blackmailing me with naked pictures and videos that he had, contacting everybody in my life. He's making false IRS reports against my family. Now, at that time, Carrie was already a lawyer herself, but she really only did family law stuff, wills, guardianships, things like that. And I had so much difficulty during that process finding a lawyer who knew what to do and like was at the intersection of intimate partner violence and internet law and First Amendment and knew how to get an order of protection. I, I was really desperate. And so after this all ended, I became the lawyer I needed a lawyer for people like Matthew. So she told me her story and I told her mine. And before I could finish, she said, I would like to represent you. I think we can slow this attack on you. And the way to do that, Carrie said, was to go after Grinder, take him to court and argue that this guy, JC, used Grinder essentially as a weapon, that Grinder knew all about it and did absolutely nothing to stop it. And so... Day of the hearing, Carrie and her team file in, sit down, confident looking at their little table. We're pretty badass litigators. <laughs> and across the aisle is, of course, Grinder's lawyers. Mm-hmm. And as the hearing begins, the Grinder guys, they stand up. I'm imagining they do that thing that men do where they like put their tie tucked in like inside their jacket and they're like, Your Honor, we don't have to do anything because of. Section 230. Section 230. Yeah. And the judge is like, you're right. We don't have to go any further. That's the end of this. It was over. It was over. And I said, what the f- is Section 230? I didn't even understand what that meant. Okay, so let's start there. Okay. Section 230 is a provision passed by Congress in 1996. That's not a typo. 1996, right? (laughs) Attorney and justice correspondent at The Nation magazine, Ellie Mistal. So that's how old this law is. Now, it's worth pointing out that most of the rest of the law is no longer good law. 
it's been amended, it's been shaped, it's been overcome with kind of newer, better laws that take into account what the internet has actually become. But Section 230 is the beating core that remains. And 230, it does one simple thing. It relieves internet companies of liability for illegal things posted on their websites. Meaning, he says, not only in Matthew's case, but in others like it, when someone lies about someone else or threatens them or even tries to do them some kind of harm using an app or a website, these tech companies, they get off scot-free. That's exactly what's happening. Section 230 is fundamentally, at core, a liability shield. A shield that no other industry gets except the tech industry. In short, Section 230 makes the tech world untouchable. It's just not fair. So unlike Matthew, Carrie already knew about Section 230. She knew the grinder lawyers would use it against Matthew. And so she had actually been trying out this way to get around 230 by arguing that Grindr was a faulty product that harmed Matthew as a consumer. But the judge wasn't buying it. And with Matthew, appeal after appeal after appeal, the case just kept getting dismissed, each time because of Section 230. And so, Section 230 is my nemesis. She hates it. And weirdly enough, this hatred Carrie feels. As you know, Google enjoys a special immunity from liability under Section 230 of the Communications Decency. Is shared by a lot of people. A lot of Americans have concerns. Conservative lawmakers like Ted Cruz. Congress. To get rid of special immunity for social media companies and President Joe Biden called to have it removed. Section 230, we have to get rid of Section 230 politicians. And so did former President Donald Trump. That is the thing about Section 230. It's kind of built this, like, king-sized mattress of strange bedfellows who are all teaming up and saying, we want it gone. It is literally this, like, ominous, looming monster But Matthew? I don't think they should get rid of it. Is not one of those people. Because even though this law lets companies like Grindr completely ignore what happens on their platforms... Without Section 230, we couldn't live the way we do today. It is the law that makes the internet possible. And so now we're really getting into the heart of Section 230. And we're going to go backwards. All right. To a time not that long ago when what the internet would be, what it would look like and feel like was a very open question. A time when sort of anything seemed possible. Um, it's the world of this sorry, website. Sorry, what, how, what year are we in? I, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so 1992. Things are starting to happen. Things are starting to happen. Back when getting on the internet required somebody else in your house to get off the phone. Dun, 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 dun. The internet has evolved from this thing that really only academics use. It's taken us five years of real hard work to develop a system like this. To something niche and nerdy communities are playing on in the form of chat rooms. Asking why not go talk to real people. To finally... Introducing the power of prodigy. Something that everyday people like you and me were using through these bulletin boards. What Prodigy does is connect our computer with a fantastic range of services. Prodigy was one of these main early bulletin boards. And, you know, it let people post something on there and then other people would comment on it. It had no graphics, 
no pictures of any kind. It was only text. And although it may have been primitive, you had access to information all around the world. And, that's a and as amazing as that was, as more and more people were logging on to get world news or share recipes or share their opinions about financial markets. Prodigy needs your attention. You have new mail. These bulletin boards, they began to get... You're dumb. Heated. Instant message. Goodbye. And so guys like Chuck. Chuck Epstein, moderator of the Prodigy Money Talk bulletin board. Were brought in to turn down the temperature by removing posts that went too far. So, you know, I just took down swear words, derogatory words, racial slurs, etc. And it's just, just you there. You're the, all by yourself. That's correct. I was the only one who had the software, the moderating software. And there were, oh, a, 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 easily a couple thousand posts per day on the Money Talk bulletin board about stocks, bonds, real estate, equities. Mm. So uh, it was exciting. <laughs> and so Chuck, he managed to create this little neighborhood where people could connect and say what they wanted, but where he could also be a kindly curator, make sure that no one got out of line. Until... Well, one evening I was at my house, took my poodle out the front door for a walk. And Love you, little fella. He was a, a miniature French poodle, Bo. And we walked down the street about, you know, 40 paces. Bo does his business, Chuck stretches his legs. And a man literally jumps out of the bushes. Oh my God. It was like from the spy movies. I didn't know what this guy was doing. And standing there under a streetlight. He says, like, Mr. Epstein. I said, yes. And he hands me a piece of paper in an envelope. It was, it was an envelope. And he says, uh, thank you. Have a nice night. So Chuck turns around, walks home quickly. I, I, he, and uh, I went back in the house and opened the envelope. And The first thing that he sees on this piece of paper, it says, Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy in big letters at the very top. And said, what the hell is this? Turns out that Stratton Oakmont was suing Chuck's employer, Prodigy, mm -hmm. claiming that someone had used Chuck's bulletin board to smear their company, saying that their president was uh, a thief involved in some scams. And Stratton Oakmont was a criminal organization, basically uh, attacked the reputation and the financial acumen and the honesty and the ethics of Stratton Oakmont. And that these posts constituted defamation. In this $100 million lawsuit. Now, as would be discovered years later, these posts were not defamatory. In fact, Stratton Oakmont and their president were doing so many illegal things that they would one day inspire Leonardo DiCaprio. Was all this legal? Absolutely not. In the film, The Wolf of Wall Street. We don't work for you, man. Yeah, my money taped to your boobs. Technically, you do work for me. <laughs> yeah, Jonah Hill's character was actually based on the guy who cried defamation. But at the time of the suit, nobody knew anything about that. And so... The lawsuit was about a... It went over a... Uh, uh, when the thing went to trial, these wolves of Wall Street, they argued that because Prodigy employed people like Chuck, moderators who left posts up and took posts down, that they were responsible for every defamatory post they left up. And this judge agreed. The judge ruled that Prodigy was responsible. The world of Prodigy. Now, the irony here is that right around this time, there was another company. Access to the internet. Enter CompuServe. CompuServe. And CompuServe did not hold itself out to be a family-friendly bulletin board. 
They were just like Prodigy, but they had no moderators, no chucks, didn't take anything down. All the swear words, defamation, racial slurs, all of it stayed there. And when they went to trial in a very similar online defamation lawsuit, they won. And so weirdly in this situation, if Prodigy had never set out to be a family-friendly place, if they said, whatever you want, have it, they would not have lost this lawsuit. Well, that seems completely ass-backwards. Yes, yes. (laughs) What the law was saying is that if your approach is anything goes, uh, then you'll be scot-free. But if you attempt to have rules of the road, then we're going to make you responsible for every piece of content that's uploaded by every single one of your users. Former Republican representative of California, Chris Cox. And when he learned about this, he was like, this is not the way we want the internet to be regulated. Because of the, the obvious consequences. You know, the rate of increase in users of the internet was exponential. And it was clear that this new means of communication was going to be of vital importance, either for good or for ill. And he worried that this precedent set by these two cases, like reward the Wild Wests, punish the family-friendly sites, that that could be disastrous. And one of the great things about being a member of Congress is that um, when you pick up the newspaper and you see something that needs to be fixed, you say, there ought to be a law. And then your next thought is... <laughs> You're like, is, who can do this for me? <laughs> yeah, I, I could do that. But he needed a partner, so... Uh, I made a beeline to my friend Ron. Ron Wyden, one of Oregon's United States senators. Democrat, little buds, they get ice cream together. Mm. Chocolate chip, for me. I'm chocolate, although when I'm being very extravagant, I have one scoop of vanilla and one scoop of chocolate. That's living the life. (laughs) And he says, run. Like, I think it's really, really important that we do something about this. Explain these two cases and how, you know, online platforms would offer the choice. You could either police your website and be liable for everything, even if something slipped through, or you could turn a blind eye and not police anything. And Chris and I said, maybe we can come up with something that really promotes the best internet an internet where sites could take down what they wanted without getting in trouble. And the the point was to keep it really simple. So Chris and I went to uh, the house dining room, sat by ourselves, and we put this together. A couple days later. We're done. It wasn't perfect by any means. And do either of you know it by heart? I'm sure you do because you talk about this all the time. But could you just say it just so we have it on the recording? Yeah, sure. What it says is that No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. In other words, these internet companies could control the things that got posted on their sites as they saw fit without the threat of being sued. And so... Uh, Right now, we're going to take you over to the Library of Congress for this signing ceremony. Mr. Clinton used the same... February 8th, 1996. Today, our world is being remade yet again by an information revolution. In a wood-paneled hall, President Clinton signed these 26 words into law. This historic legislation recognizes that with freedom comes responsibility. This bill protects consumers against monopolies. It guarantees the diversity of voices our democracy depends upon. Perhaps most of all, it enhances the common good. Thank you very much. 
I mean, just as one example, if it hadn't passed and sites remained liable for every little thing that we posted. Uh, You couldn't imagine uh, a project like Wikipedia taking off uh, as it has. Or the Me Too movement. Or that ice bucket challenge that raised millions of dollars for ALS research. Or Black Lives Matter. They absolutely could not exist without Section 230. I mean, Section 230 let websites moderate as best as they could without the threat of constantly being dragged to court, which allowed space for this massive online wave that we're all still surfing today. But of course, waves can be dangerous. And now, more than ever, it's starting to feel like we could use some more lifeguards. Because, you know, these wonky little bulletin boards that sparked all of this, they evolved into comment sections, which evolved into social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and then into dating apps like Tinder and Grindr. And before we knew it, billions of people were on these things. And While these sites have enabled lots of good things to happen. Nasty text and Instagram posts. Fat, fat, fat. Drink bleach and die. They've also given us this whole new universe of ways to be cruel to one another. Cyberbully. Doxing. Revenge porn. Deep fake pornography. And even though the platforms make some efforts to weed out the bad stuff. It's so mean to just do that. It's not funny. So much of it gets through. Kill yourself. My pit is on it. For my little stuff, they know my name and everything. Report the account, please. And when someone comes to them and says, please make it stop like Matthew, our grinder guy, or countless other people. This is what it looks like to see yourself naked against your will being spread all over the internet. This is what it looks like. They say, it's not our problem. Section 230. I really don't think I'll ever get these images down from the internet. And I just, I'm sorry to my husband. And I'm sorry to my children. Again, uh, Section 230, while critical to how the internet was made, critical to how it functions, is old. Once again, Justice Correspondent Ellie Mistal. Our laws should be updated to reflect how the internet works today, not how it worked in 1996. And so there is a coalition amongst hardcore conservatives and some progressives to do something about Section 230 and take it away. It seems not unlike 1996 when Section 230 passed. Like, there's this open question again of what is the sort of internet that we want. However, the bottom line is that we don't know what's going to happen to the internet if we take away Section 230. One way it could go is for everybody to go back to a wild, wild west scenario where there is Mm -hmm. no moderation anywhere at all, right? Mm -hmm. However, Mm -hmm. the other way it could go would be to uh, have extreme moderation. Hmm. Nobody has Hmm. open comment threads. Nobody has a forum where they can say whatever they want. Everything Hmm. is either completely closed off or highly monitored by an AI 
by the mm-hmm. algorithm that is just without pride or prejudice, just running around and smacking people based on keywords. Doesn't matter the context, right? Which, you know, it would take out racial slurs, problematic stuff, but it also might weed out these kernels of ideas that led to the Arab Spring and Black Lives Matter and Me Too. So only the most kind of anodyne, disnified, mm. I like soup. Are those options like both equally likely if Section 230 were to go away? Well, are you conservative or are you liberal? Because because what you think is more, more likely really tracks with your politics right now. Liberals, at least the ones who think Section 230 should be taken away, think these uh, the, the 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 social media platforms will go full on aggressive stopping hateful comments. However, conservatives like Josh Hawley really think that it's going to go the other way. That in a post-Section 230 world, Mm -hmm. because of the threat of liability, these companies, um, they would go in a Wild West format and just let everything ride so nobody gets in trouble. But the problem there, Ellie says, is... You've got to be able to turn the internet upside down and shake money out of it, right? Like, (laughs) like none of this Mm. happens (laughs) if somebody can't make money off of it, right? Meaning, in most cases... Sometimes I just want to rent a car and go, you know? I do know. And I think I can help you with that. Really? Advertisers, yeah. I love Hertz. Oh, yes. Love Hertz. And what the advertisers want is for there to be moderation. Hmm. Because they make more money when things are, for lack of a better word, nice. So it's highly likely that the advertisers simply will not stand for a wild, wild west scenario where, like, when you click on the page, all of the comments are like, F you, you dumb N-word. And if that happens, you're basically calcifying the internet as we have it today. Like these small companies, these startups, these homespun sites, they will not have the resources to moderate. If you put these moderation controls on them, the next Twitter, the next Facebook, the next TikTok, there will be no way for them to compete. So what we will have is basically just the titans that we have today. So we are stuck between like a rock, a hard place and a freaking like dagger right in front of our face. Like there's no, it feels like there's like no clear way to tackle 230 without then destroying the internet as we know it. It wouldn't be so comp, it wouldn't be a complicated issue if it wasn't a complicated issue. Once more, Matthew Herrick from the beginning of this episode, whose life got literally destroyed by Section 230, but still thinks we shouldn't get rid of it. I'm so surprised that you are you don't want to just get rid of it altogether. I don't know. It's like a freaking shark came and bit your arm and you're like, well, the shark has done some good for the ocean, you know? Like, Well, because I understand how complicated it is. I mean, obviously I'm pissed, but like I'm launching a coalition with, you know, a nonprofit organization to help survivors. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like seek out what I can utilize through that experience to create positive in the world. And I think that's all I can do. Hmm. But um, I'd be bullshitting you if I said that I had the right answer. I just know all the wrong answers. And he's not alone. Like, no one's quite sure how to fix this thing. 
so the decision for now just seems to be to just leave it. And the Supreme Court said so. Um, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Section 230C1... So this past term... The Supreme Court heard two cases about Section 230. Google v. Gonzalez and Twitter v. Tamina. And during one of these trials from the bench... Elena Kagan says... Why is it that the tech industry gets a pass? A little bit unclear. On the other hand, I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the Internet. And boy, there is a lot of uncertainty. And they decided to leave it in place. You know, there, there, there is a reason why a law from 1996 is still the law today, and it's because, not because it works, but because it is, it is the, it is the least bad option. 